Blog Talk Radio. It is Tuesday evening. I'm Tanya Hathaway, and I'm your host with Tanya Talks, where your voice is heard and your story is told on Marty Oakley's TS Radio Network and Stephen Burke's 89.9 KLRB FM Lighthouse Christian Radio. Over there in Stewart, Oklahoma, and um, reaching most of Oklahoma, as well as as uh, some surrounding areas, if you have uh, if you're listening live stream. I want to invite you to uh, wait about half an hour, and if you have a question for our guest, Melissa Hurry, who I'll introduce in a few minutes, or myself, or a thought, if you'd like to call in, that number will be 917-388-4520, and you'll press number one to get into a queue, 917-388-4520. Thank you for tuning in. Once again, it is April 6, 2021, and uh, there's so, so much going on. It seems in all realms of the world, in the news, in the fake news, in the real news, in the assumed news, in the unassumed news, what do we call it these days? We kind of like to stick to alternative media where you are going to get first-hand information, and we're not just saying things, we back things up. Sure, we offer an opinion every now and then, um, you know, that's fine, but when we say that we have seen something uh, or, or documents, uh, something's been researched, uh, we're happy to cite that information whenever we can. Um, we're not perfect, but we sure do our best. So if there are any errors of content, uh, or that you think might have been brought forward, you can certainly feel free to uh, get in touch with me or make a comment at the uh, in the comment section if you're live streaming, and I'll get back to you. I'll be sure to get back to you. Uh, so any uh, kind of errors uh, that we are not to be held liable for, but I don't think that we have had anybody that has actually been able to come to us and say, or come to me and say that something was wrong that needed to be made right uh, that would have been a game changer with um, with an outcome for anything. We have a lot of good, uh, good things happening, but we have a lot of work to do, and we need you. So once again, thank you for tuning in with us. I'm Marty Oakley, Stephen Burke. And myself cannot be held personally or professionally liable for any error in content. But then again, we're here, I'm here to listen to your information that might actually uh, lend a hand in uh, changing the information that is being provided to you. We just never know. We want to know 
exactly the truth, and we will continue going forward and bringing it to you exactly that way. Um, that being said, uh, before I introduce Marty, I would like, uh, before I introduce Melissa, hurry, I would like Marty to just give a little update with things that are going on with you. Let's talk a little bit about your shows, if you would, please, your other shows. Okay, I do a whole bunch of other shows, and that's all I have to say. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, uh, ppjg.me. P- yeah, go ahead. Uh, we we got hacked on Facebook. I had a huge Facebook play- page that had been running for uh, 10, 11 years, and we got hacked this last week. So for all you listeners out there, if you get a, a friend request from me, it ain't me, babe. And uh, somebody is sending out friend requests to people that were already my friends. We are building a new page, and um, we'll bring that live, hopefully, by the first of next week. It's a lot of work to do, a lot of information to gather. And uh, so we're going from there. And just so people know, yes, I have been offered to take the shows, at least most of them, uh, mainstream, what we call mainstream, um, I have turned that offer down. It's about the fourth time I've gotten one uh, for the same reasons. I'm not going to be censored. I'm not going to be told what I can say, what I can talk about, what my response is going to be to anything. I speak for myself and myself only. And um, I'm not much for censorship. And uh, so, no, we're not going anywhere. We're going to stay here on Blog Talk. And... We've we've got a huge audience on here, so it's I, I don't see any sense in moving. And I had one offer uh, from a large commercial station, uh, Tanya, that wanted to carry all the shows, and they were going to make me a deal you could not believe. They were wow. only going to charge me six hundred dollars a month to be on their station instead of the usual nine hundred. Charge you. And Yes, and I fell out laughing. <laughs> and I said, you have no idea how poor I am, but even if I had this kind of money laying around to lay out every month, it wouldn't be for this. I said, we're doing just fine where we are, and you know that we're doing just fine, or you would not have approached me. And uh, so now they're not happy with me. And uh, But, no, we are staying right where we're at. I'm not going to give up any of the shows I'm not going to drop any hosts. I'm not going to do any of that. So that's all the news that is news. Good night. You don't fix something no. that's working. And we have seen things work. We yes. have seen things work. We have, you know, your platform has uh, made it possible uh, to uh, share um, in the right places at the right time and seen things turn around for the better. And, you know, yeah. we, we want everything to turn around for the better and and uh hopefully you know someday it'll be a different world where corruption is the exception to the rule uh, but right now it's yeah. not so we need no, to keep it going isn't. and That's true. Uh, you know yeah it's just it's just uh it, it seems to be spiraling down and uh you know despite the threes um that are you know it, it's amazing when you know, you hear something that went right or somebody's thanking you for something, and it's just like I cry any time that comes my way. 
um, and, and because, you know, I tend to look at the bigger picture and, you know, I cry because I'm so, it feels so good to have been able to do something, you know, but, yes. but yet mm-hmm. I, I look at the bigger picture, as I'm sure you do too, and just know that there's so much to be done. And so that's why it's important that, you know, we can be very happy with our, 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 our victories along the way. Uh, but we have to remember that until these patterns of the of the corruption of the um, of the uh, suffocating of the information of the uh, you, you know the the stamping on the, our constitutional rights, a bill of rights, a due process, you know, it's great that somebody is freed or something is turned around, but. That has to be the general rule. <laughs> that has to be the general rule. And not the exception, and yes. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's tough. It's tough because it's it's kind of like, oh, I found a $100 bill I, or, or, or it fell out of somebody's pocket. I know whose pocket it fell out of. And you go return it. It's like, oh, thank you so, so much. Thank you so much for giving my, my, my $100 bill that fell out of my pocket. Thank you so much. Well, gosh, what's wrong with that picture? You know? Yeah. What's wrong with that picture? Isn't that the right thing to do to begin with? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And yeah. I, I'd like to believe there are more good people in this world than there are bad people and uh, or misguided people. And so we just have to keep on finding that balance of uh, making things better and uh, talk about problem solving and how we're doing it. And uh, keep finding ways to do it. There you go. There you go. Well, I don't know. It's been a long haul, Tanya. Yeah. Go ahead. Anyway, have a a good show. I'll be listening. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. So um, keep that in mind. Uh, You know, geez, $900 a month. Um, Marty Oakley is, uh, she's going to make a dime. Go to her page, ppjg.me. Do you want to help? cover some of those costs. Uh, she's not set up as a nonprofit. She just does this because this is what she does. Stephen Burke on Saturday afternoons, 89.9 KLRB FM. She's got to start listening in to that radio station because he is all over the kinds of things that we are talking about with uh, what is going wrong Um and transparency, and uh, and just he's he is just all about um, bringing our constitution back where it's not being followed. Because if we start making that something that is uh, not the the um, the Trump card, you know, it, every everything falls, everything falls apart. Um, Remember, that constitutional law, that supersedes a little local statute, state statute, and even federal statutes. And when people want to interpret them to a standard that they choose suits their agenda, we have big issues. We have big issues. And when courts' opinions justice's opinions start coming out and they cite things that are not 
actually um, correct, uh, they start to set a precedent that other people start citing to win cases or to do something wrong. And so just always remember this. You know, turn to our Bill of Rights, our Declaration of Rights, turn to our Constitution. That is the answer. Uh, Obviously, the bad guys, those that are, don't want you to turn to it, and they'll do everything they can to override you. But until we, or as we continue to work together, we must remember that that's what we stand by. Melissa Hurry, hello. How are you? Hi. Thank you for coming on tonight. Last minute. No problem. Thank you for having me on again. Well, Melissa Hurry is a, a she is a legal expert, an ethics expert, and she is working uh, very, very hard on on many different levels to try to fix what's wrong in our justice system or injustice system and uh she's you know been in touch uh and working with a number of people that we have had on or their their uh stories have been on our shows whether it's themselves or their loved ones and we're just very very excited about um going forward with bringing the law and four into um into the light finally, and all those similar patterns of injustices and denials of due process and whatnot. Um, And uh, just we've had some great shows with with them. We had a brief one with Jorge Bravo. I know that. But we're moving forward on this Sunday with that. Is that correct? Yes. And you've been working quite a bit with Julius Jones. Is that correct, too? Um, yeah, I've been an advocate of Julius Jones for a while, so I know we spoke about him on the last show that we did. We're still in the same uh, status, waiting for his stage two communication hearing. Um, it's been projected that it may occur in June, but we don't know until the um, Pardon and Parole Board um, posts their uh, agenda, I guess, for June. So there's actually a meeting with the Pardon and Parole Board that is occurring um Monday, April 12th through, I think it goes through Wednesday. It's a continuation of it. So I'll be in listening to that meeting, watching that meeting on Zoom to see what they're up to. Oh, good. um, Good. Me too. Me too. Or the archive of it. Isn't it interesting that, you know, in Oklahoma we have a pardon parole board where there is um, a member, uh, an ex-judge, Judge McCall, Alan McCall, mm-hmm. is that his first name? Yes. Yeah, Alan McCall, who uh, who sits on the board. He sits on the board when he is not following the rules to sit on the board. He is uh, accepting a pension and uh, from the state of Oklahoma for his judgeship, and he is not supposed to be doing so while you're on in the pardon parole pardon parole board when you're working for so he's accepting a pension <laughs> he's accepting the pension and yet he's still working for the people 
in essence, that he's accepting the pension for. So there's conflicts there, not to mention the fact that uh, Alan McCall had made a public statement, it's my understanding, actually saying that any kind of violent offender, I'm summarizing it, that he will not say yes to, regardless of all of the good work that they have done to make themselves a better person, um, to reform, and, and uh, you know, and some, and some of these people are actually wrongfully convicted. Uh, and he's just standing by his word. And I just wonder, you know, is that because he doesn't want to be found out? Is that because he has such disdain for a certain population, regardless of what the truth is? What are your thoughts on this? Well, first of all, it's interesting because I was talking to somebody in my office today. Um, you know, I work for the Office of State Ethics. You know that, but I don't know if everybody else does. Right. So Thank I you was for that. having a conversation. Anything else that you want to add to because you also are working with <laughs> legislators? Correct. Well, being at the Office of State Ethics gives me a keen insight as to what goes on in our legislature because at the Office of State Ethics, we regulate public officials and lobbyists and other state employees. So um, being that we regulate lobbyists and and public officials, I get to see a lot of what happens at the legislature or right at the Capitol. So in normal times, I can go and sit in public hearings. You know, I take my personal time and I go do those things. But now it's a little bit different. Everything is on Zoom still. But um, I have, um, there's some very interesting criminal justice reform legislation that is pending in this session in my state. And I was kind of excited because as we were starting the show, I was checking on a, a bill. Um, I work for the Office of State Ethics. I'm also finishing up my master's degree in criminal justice. So I'm, I'm in a public policy class this semester and I have to follow a bill. And now I've always taken an interest in second look legislation. And for anybody who doesn't know what that is, there's a lot of people in our prison systems that are serving life sentences, life without parole sentences. In fact, this is a statistic from the Sentencing Project. They um, have found that one in seven sentences are life without parole sentences. So second look legislation. Oh yes, I know. Second look legislation and, and that's would visit in some of the sentences. Um, no, one. That's a national statistic. One in seven sentences. Um, it's life without parole. Life without parole sentences. Yes, that's a, that's a statistic from the Sentencing Project. Um, they're very. They have some very interesting information. In fact, um, there is some pending legislation here in Connecticut. It's um, the the name of the bill. It's a raised bill, and it's an act concerning parole opportunities for individuals serving lengthy sentences for crimes committed before the individual turned the age of 25. So this is a big subject, right, with second look legislation. We have a lot of offenders who have committed crimes before the age of 25, and we'll be talking about that Sunday because that's all of the law and four. And they sit in prison and to never, for these sentences to never be revisited. But we know now that when a crime is committed before the age of 25, there's a real big question of whether or not that person lacks the culpability because of their cognitive ability. So your cognitive ability is not developed in certain areas before the age of 25. That's not an opinion. There's plenty of research that backs right. that up. 
Right, and and that's why they talk about, you know, um, sure, we hear that a a lot regarding smoking pot and, you you know, um, and uh, just the the different things with, yeah, the the brain Mm -hmm. is fully developed at the age of 25. Now, is that its peak then, or does it start degenerating? Who Who the heck knows? I guess it might depend on how we yeah and that's our lives how arbitrary is this legal age thing and i say thing because you can't drink in most states until you're 21 but you could be sentenced to death at 18 you could be sentenced to life without parole at 18 so i mean there's a there's an argument for under 25 year olds um and this I just was a topic of conversation, Melissa. Mm-hmm. Uh, these two young ladies who um, carjacked um, a, a car in uh, was that DC, I believe. Mm-hmm. DC, and the man end, wound up um, dying. Um, they're more concerned. One of them about her her phone. What's your? I mean, I know I'm catching on the spot um, here, but. It's, uh, I have such heartburn over that. I I really have such heartburn over it. I, I you know, like how do you, do you think that they needed to? Um, you know, I think they just got off with probo- probation. They are young girls. I think one is thirteen and one fifteen. But do you feel that they should be in juvie for a little while, or do you feel that? You know, I I don't know exactly what their uh, sentence is, but what I do know is that it is, you know, nothing behind bars or juvie Mm -hmm. or or anything like that. I would never want to see them in, you know, an adult prison, that's for sure, at that young age. Uh, But how how do we um, go ahead in society when... um, when something like that happens, do you feel that that is sends a message that uh, you can do this as long as you're, a, you know, a youth or, uh, you know, I mean, I'm mad at the parents, but nobody knows the lives. Nobody knows what's going on in their lives that would lead them to do such a thing, whether they're spoiled, whether, um, you know, whether they are, you know, traumatized at home. I don't know. I didn't listen to the hearing, but I did hear the outcome. And I am a big believer that cases should be looked at on an individual basis. If you look at, you know, I mean, so take juveniles. If you look at um, best practices for juvenile offenders, at the top of the list is risk assessment and um, cognitive behavioral therapy. So if you take a 13-year-old, and you throw them in ju- juvenile hall, and I'm not I, I'm not condoning the things that they do. I, I want to make that clear. Right. I think right. Everybody should just run amok and do what they want to do and have no consequences for it. Right. But yeah. the way that I see things, and as far as juveniles are concerned, it is not going to be beneficial to them to to for, for their rehabilitation to throw them in juvenile hall. You have to figure out why. Are they doing the things that they're doing? And it's a, it's a proven fact that um, the crime control models, put, putting them in juvenile detention, it's going to make it worse, and chances are they're going to end up in the adult system. So, in order and, for and this is where, that, you know, we need to really change the system where 
it's really mm-hmm. about rehabilitation. It's it's about getting to the root of things as opposed to a holding center uh, where, um, you know, they're treated like they're, you, you know, and this is for anybody, okay, where, mm-hmm. you know, often we've had many shows on this. People are abused. They you are. know, the sentence is the sentence, you, you know, but we the deal is it's supposed to be about rehabilitating it's supposed to be about entering into society and being able to be fruitful but quite often it is a setup for failure and you know of course there's there's more money in that um but there is, and there's many. There's much money made from you know all these different programs that are offered to you know to, to purportedly put these kids back on the right track. But there's certain criteria that needs to be followed. Um, I don't know if you're familiar at all with with best practices for juvenile offenders, but Mark Lipsy is pretty much what you would call like the the grandfather of research for juvenile practices. And you know what? If you have a few basic things in a, a juvenile offender program, your chances of preventing them from going into, back into the juvenile system or even into the adult system um, drastically lower if you have um, risk assessment. And again, cognitive behavioral therapy, and then services like juvenile mentor programs. I take a big interest in juvenile mentor programs because it's something I hope to work on in the future. And um, if, if you can have a successful rehabilitative program if you implement those things. And it sounds pretty simple, but there's a lot of programs that, that don't do that. There's a lot of programs that um, I, I've seen a, a whole lot of programs that just, you know, purport to keep these kids from going back into the system, but they're not following the best practice criteria that make them successful. So it's really mm-hmm. important. And, I mean, that's the case, too, in just adult offenders as well. You you have to have some pretty thorough reentry services to keep adults from recidivating as well. So, it, it, but juveniles, you know, we have to figure out what it is that is causing them to engage in delinquent or deviant or criminal behavior. You can't fix the problem by putting them in juvenile hall. You have to fix the problem by finding out why they're doing what they're doing and changing that behavior. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a well, controversial I'm, I'm issue because at, even here in Connecticut, uh, we have issues. So, Yeah, and I see back in 2016, it was a February session, Governor's Bill number 18, and this is about an act concerning a second chance society. So, mm-hmm. um, So this bill that Connecticut is um, bringing to the table now is this uh, it's another attempt or is it a revised bill I mean something uh, this might not have gone through otherwise you know we wouldn't be talking about this right now but I'm Mm -hmm. looking and it it appears as though this bill back in 2016 that it was exactly what you spoke of looking at things individually and I think that's important, yes, for juveniles and for adults as well um, as to, you know, because an adult can be 26, right, or 25. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. uh, an adult could be. You know, there comes a time, though, when you know, adults are adults, and you just need to know better. You, you just need to know better. And, you do. Uh, I mean, the, you know, different individuals deal with different circumstances. And right. I mean, it is, you know, it, it's necessary pay for the crimes that we commit, but we also have to, I feel we have to figure out that, you know, there's certain populations, you know, the, the poor communities that, that are committing crimes and, you know, we need to try to figure out why those crimes are being committed and move, I feel, towards rehabilitation more than crime control. Connecticut right, right. cut their prison population well, I'm, I'm reading right here. It says a child or youth may be found neglected who, for reasons other than being impoverished, has been abandoned, is being uh, denied proper care and attention physically, educationally, emotionally, or morally, or is being permitted to live under conditions, circumstances, or associations injurious to the well-being of the child or youth. So those are the things that, um, you know, sure, they should be looked at. They, mm-hmm. they should be looked at. Is a child doing something out of survival? Is a cha- exactly. Does a child know nothing else? Um, yeah, it's There's quite generational often. patterns. We know that. We know there's generational patterns of going in and out of the system. I mean, you know, if you're a child and, you know, you see your father and your brother or your uncle and your cousins and, you know, they go in and out of jail, then if we don't do something to fix it and to stop it, then it's just going to continue. And um, like I said, I don't condone committing crimes, but I also am a big believer that we have to find out what's the underlying reasons and you're not going to fix it until you do that. Right. And the victim statement, you know, a statement from the, the family left behind that that uh, is impactful, how they feel about um, the the punishment, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, it's always you, of course, you have to um, look at the victim and, and the, the victim's families because they're suffering too. But I don't feel like anything should be based purely on vengeance um, mm-hmm. and not to take away anything from the victims or the families, but I don't believe in the death penalty. There's going to, you know, there's obviously families who are going to support that. I'll never right. be a supporter of it. So you can't just, you can't base it only on that. There has right. to be, you know, some kind of reasoning there. And, that, and, and we, and you had mentioned the bill from 2016, and here now we are in 2021, 20, and we have this bill again. So we've talked about that before, too. Legislation doesn't change overnight. It's something that you have to keep pushing and pushing and pushing. So when a, when a bill, even the bills we spoke about in Oklahoma, if it does happen that those bills are dead this session, meaning that they don't get passed, then it doesn't mean that they shouldn't come up again in the future. So things things evolve. I mean, society's opinion on things change, you know. And so I don't know exact statistics right now, but, I mean, I don't know who out here supports the crime control model over the rehabilitative model. Certain states are different. We know this. Here in right. Connecticut, we're a pretty progressive state as far as criminal justice reform goes. 
We've cut the prison population in half from 2007 to now. Our entire population, our entire prison population right now is just over 9,000. There's some states that will top that in just two or three of their facilities. Oh, my goodness, yes. And, and so, okay, with that, how has uh, the crime rate been? Um, we, you know what, that is something I will look into is like crime rates in specific cities because um, in Connecticut, you, you're going to want to look at the crime rates like in, in Bridgeport and Waterbury and Hartford right? Um, right. And, and see, you know, what, what it is. And that's something I will look, actually look into because hmm. I would like to know what the, what the crime rates are in the big cities. There's a lot of, Connecticut is a pretty diverse state. You have some, you know, you have the big cities and then you have some really wealthy towns that they right. really don't worry about their crime rates too much. But you want right. to look look at those, you know, New Haven, Hartford, Bridgeport, Waterbury. Yeah, and, um, I know, I I know Bridgeport is, uh, is um, that's a tough one, Bridgeport is. Yeah, Harper, yeah. I, mean, I know that, New Haven, certain parts of New Haven for sure. Yeah. I grew up in Connecticut. Um, yes, you did. I remember that. Well, yeah, one and and in a in in a town that does have a a, a low uh, crime rate and uh, and you know it just teaches you that you know you have, you look around you know you just you know you cross a block sometimes and you can go from safe to the, a gang owning the block you know in certain parts of Connecticut, mm-hmm. New York, you know anywhere like anywhere else. Um, yeah. So, uh, what what are the um, so what are the main uh, prongs that are being brought to the table for the second chances then in your state? And sometimes I wonder, and let me know how, what you think about this. Sometimes I wonder, is too much being put into one bill? Is that why it does not get passed? Can we make these bills? a little less bountiful to take it one step at a time? Yeah, so, you know, bills are amended often. So it's not all the time that a bill will just make it through as it's written. There's often amendments, like there could be amendments in committee, and once it goes to a public hearing and they get the public view on it, the amendments can be made after that. So it often takes some amendments to pass a bill, you know, it, it's it's a bipartisan effort. Uh, you can't pass. You know what I mean? Even even in Connecticut, where the where the majority is is Democrat by far, and then you take a state like Oklahoma, and the majority is Republican by far. But yeah. it doesn't mean that you can't still pass bills. You just have to negotiate and amend these bills and try to come to some kind of common ground to be able to pass the bill. So and, and you said, it takes more than one session. Public hearing. And this is a point yes. that I know that you are trying to drive home and I try to drive home as well is public hearing. What does that mean to our listeners? Despite where you know the fact that you know you're talking about Connecticut right now, we know we've got New York, we know we've got Oklahoma, uh, Lawton Ford, Julius Jones, uh Daryl Wiggins going up for uh parole in, in May. Um you know, but what is it that we can do? Obviously, the Pardon and Parole Board does not care about public opinion, or certain people don't. 
uh, because they're just following their little sheets where they, you know, cross this or that or the other thing. I mean, I mm-hmm. think a partner parole board can be a great thing, but we need to have uh, zero conflicts of interest when it comes to the partner parole board. And, and what is the mission of the partner parole board? Are we, uh, are we perverting the mission of it by not providing the reasons for the reasons for uh, uh, the uh, the denials, and what about those that are saying I'm innocent? Uh, I mean, are we punishing those that really are innocent that refuse to say that they did it by just denying them because they have not admitted their guilt and when they're not guilty? For those, yeah, who that uh, that is that is a, a practice there that is is really mind-boggling to me because I'm not so sure that if if I didn't do something that I would say I did it, you know what I mean? <laughs> there's, I mean, there's people that will because it will get them out of jail. And this, and, and this happens in plea bargains all the time, right? Even before. So people will plead guilty to something because they don't want to risk the exposure of more prison time. If you actually exercise your right to a trial, it seems like you're penalized for that. Right. And, um, I just, I just and yet the plea bargains, that. you can't take to appeal, even if you've been duped. No, you know, you've got these, no. these young people that have been scared to death, being wrongfully told by sometimes their own attorneys. That yeah. If you don't take this, you could be facing the death penalty. I mean, oh, yeah. does this sound familiar when it comes to the law and form? Absolutely. I was just going to say, we'll be talking about Michael Gaines with the Lawton Four. And, I mean, he was intimidated and um, they even used somebody from death row to, you know, to intimidate him with the death penalty. So that happens. You know, you, you take this sentence and, and you'll avoid the death penalty or you take this sentence and, and this is in another one of the Lawton Four case and, you know, and you'll be out in just a few years. And meanwhile, this man, Mark West, is still sitting in prison this many years later. And, uh, you know, it, I know some very good attorneys, but then there are some other attorneys that I don't know how they live with themselves when they do those types of things to their client. I mean. Yeah, I struggle with good attorneys in Oklahoma. I really do. Yeah. I, I, I struggle well, with in Connecticut, so Oklahoma. When I say. Uh, yeah, they will. They, they yeah. actually, Oklahoma will uh, blacklist you. Um, or or yeah. or you could die of food poisoning supposedly, or um, or um, they have to go live in another state. Um, you know, I've been doing this for so long in regard to Oklahoma that I just uh, I the bullying and the threatening. Colonic, and, forgive me for the yeah. language, but uh, but people that are living. Um, in prisons and being abused or um, or losing their lives in prison uh, because they don't even belong there or they should have been released long ago. Um, that's a pretty nasty feeling in itself. And, uh, and that's just... Um, and that's got to stop. That's got to stop. Uh, we've got... Yeah. You, you well, know, from from the point of, you, you know, this, you know, from the denial of due process, these threats, even by their own attorney, 
to turn on them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's got to be, there's got to be ex parte meetings going on, ex parte meaning behind the scenes, um, uh, behind the scenes talk between uh, the judge, attorneys, where it's not necessary. Ex parte can be legal in certain circumstances, like for a, a violence situation, a restraining order, or mm-hmm. not taking risks and removing the children from the situation until they find out whether that situation is truly dangerous or not. But typically, uh, both sides are supposed to have access to all of the information that is being passed along. In Oklahoma, you are mm-hmm. not. An attorney does not have to give you a contract. Now, let's start there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> let's start there. I, 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 you know, that's a huge issue right yeah. there. Where Very is different. the um, where's the duty to work diligently uh, for your client? I, it's it's just beyond me because if if I were an attorney, I wouldn't be able to sleep at night. Um, knowing that I set my client up for life in prison, you know? So I I don't know how they do it, and I don't know. I mean, here in Connecticut, I worked for a private law firm for 17 years. You you don't take clients without retainer agreements and, you know, telling them, like, what you're representing them for and, uh, you know, how it's going to go. And it it just – there's more – I feel more transparency here probably. Yeah. Yep. Well, all the way it around. like that. Yeah. Yeah. And then we get uh, back to this accountability thing, right? <laughs> right. Where well, we see, need the thing is, when you've got attorneys that are actually perjuring themselves, mm-hmm. and, uh, and not to mention other parties to, you know, to a, a matter, and the judges are turning their backs on that when it's been presented to them properly. I understand there are certain oh. steps that you need to take when yeah. the judges are not paying attention to that because, hello, that's a credibility issue. That's a credibility issue. You know, I know mm-hmm. cases, including mine, where there is perjured testimony uh, and a ton of other things, and um, it was supposed to be heard before a trial. Right? Because mm-hmm. of, and that's credibility, not to mention perjury. You know, the pain and penalty, the punishment of perjury. Well, is there such a thing, really? If you don't enforce it, then what good is that being on the books? Yeah, and what good is it? We, we spoke, I think last time we were on, we spoke about um, a couple of cases out of Oklahoma. Um, Nancy Douglas and Paris Powell, they were both exonerated um, in their cases. And the, and the DA in that case was Robert Bradley Miller. And he was found to have withheld exculpatory information in that case. Mm-hmm. So the court actually found that, which is, is a rarity in of itself. Um, and that's the thing. This is exactly it. That should not be the exception to the rule. <laughs> You know, yeah, and, and, no, I mean, <laughs> I hate to say it, but it, it's a very rare occurrence that um, <laughs> you get any anything out of the Oklahoma <laughs> Criminal Court of Appeals. I mean, we were, I was talking about this with somebody today, and 
they overturned very little. But this man, this DA went, um, he, they actually, the Oklahoma Bar Association actually recommended disbarment for him. And the court said, no, we'll just suspend him for 180 days. <laughs> so, I, I mean, if you, if you have the Oklahoma Bar Association who, who are the ones who, regu- who are supposed to regulate attorneys and the court says no, I mean, what, what are you doing? There's, there's nothing, there's, there's no kind of accountability there. You know, he caused these two gentlemen to spend a great number of years in, in prison because of his misconduct, and he's given a four-month suspension. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can tell you they did a whole lot more in prison. And again, the problem. It's the fox guarding the mm-hmm. hen house. Um, they're just not... You know, again, the Bar Association uh, in the Oklahoma Constitution uh, is showing up as an arm of the Supreme Court. That in Mm -hmm. itself is absolutely crazy. And why um, we don't have people that hear this over and over again that are in Oklahoma uh, not sending this to their lawmakers and saying this is a perversion of our constitution, uh, this is a conflict of interest, that's a private company. You know, a bar association mm-hmm. is not there for our best interest. Now, maybe in some cases, you know, this, this is what happens, but um, you know, same thing with the Judicial Oversight Committee. Uh, it, we need to have civilian people, people like you, me, people like uh, whoever's listening out there, you know, mm-hmm. you know, you're smart enough to be listening. This concerns you. We need to be able to have access. Yeah, they, they, they shouldn't be self-regulating themselves. I agree with you 100%. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and, um, you know, a, a jury of our peers, you, you know, a jury of our peers, um, mm-hmm. you know, and then when we have a jury of, of our peers, we, we still have to be concerned about what kind of instructions is the judge giving them, right? And we also have to be concerned about what has not been brought forward to that jury to be able to make a good decision on the facts because so much is suppressed mm-hmm. from being in front of the jury that, you know, come to find out, the jury doesn't even know until after the fact. Oh, there was this, there was that. If I had known that, yeah. I would have, you know, differently. Uh, you know, Janet. Well, yeah, absolutely. Uh, These courts it. decide for the jury later what they would think would be exculpatory information. Uh, the court yeah. will say, well, it wouldn't have made a difference. But how do they know that? When jurors will come forward and say, yes, it would have made a difference if I had known yeah. that. Yeah. And, and so that's the thing. You can't be upset with yeah. the jury. But the jury is being, you know, hand-fed the information uh, that is uh, uh, that they get to decide on. Now, you know what? In plenty of situations, that's fine. It's legal. It's transparent. There is not exculpatory information being held back. But in far too many situations, uh, it's the difference between somebody serving life. Uh, getting the death penalty, 
And I, I think well, that's, is too many. <laughs> but that's a form of misconduct when exculpatory information is withheld. And we know that misconduct plays a big role in wrongful convictions. As a matter of fact, speaking of wrongful convictions, I think I mentioned it to you earlier that the National Registry of Exonerations last week released their 2020 report. So that's pretty interesting. Let's hear it. Well, for anybody who doesn't know who the National Registry of Exonerations is, um, it is a very, it, for me, it's an invaluable website. It's, it's, like my, <laughs> it's like my Bible for wrongful convictions because they record all the exonerations. Now, we've talked about this before. Exonerations are only people who have been wrongfully convicted and have been able to prove their innocence, which is not an easy task in many states. But so in, in uh, 2020, the National Registry of Exonerations recorded 129 exonerations for the year. 129. And so 129. And when we talk about the components that contribute to wrongful convictions, we talk about misconduct a lot. We talk about perjury a lot. Why do we talk about those a lot? Because out of 129 exonerations in, in 2020, 87 of them included misconduct. That's more than two-thirds. In mm-hmm. 2020, out of 129 exonerations, 103 of them include perjured or false accu- perjured testimony or false accusations. So it's not getting so better. This is not an error. This is intentional. This is this intentional. Conduct. Perjured testimony, and this happens a lot in Oklahoma. I know it happens in other places as well, but in many cases, you will get career informants who have other cases hanging over their heads, or you'll even have DAs intimidate witnesses to testify against somebody, even if what they're saying is not the truth. We see it in many cases. And, and so it's still a glaring factor in wrongful convictions because 103 out of 129 is off the top of my head, maybe something like 67, 68% of cases. Oh, <sighs> And so there, there are some encouraging things, though, in the report because um, professional exonerators, which are innocent projects and conviction integrity units, played a role in quite a number of these exonerations. It was, I believe, 60-something of, the, of these exonerations were... Um, uh, conviction integrity units and innocence projects played a role. And so if you look at um, the exonerations that occurred, um, 22 of them occurred in Illinois. And in, in Illinois, there's a, Kim Fox runs a conviction integrity unit there that has exonerated a number of individuals and a number of them um, were exonerated in the past couple of years due to some really big police misconduct that was going on there. Um, mm-hmm. You have Kim Worthy in Wayne County, Michigan, who has exonerated 20 people in 2020 out of her conviction integrity unit. you got Kim Og in Harris County, Texas, who runs a conviction integrity unit that sincerely exonerates innocent people. And so there's hope, but there's states that need to implement conviction integrity units in their state that already have them implemented. 
mm-hmm. that have to um, work towards sincerely exonerating people. Not just a not just a conviction integrity for show to say it's there, but right. And and we've we've talked about you know successful models before, but I'm hoping that there's more and more being created, and I'm hoping that. Um, the trend continues because we can see that they're playing a role in exonerations. Mm-hmm. And I had read a study that if um, every county had conviction integrity units, with the way the statistics looks for the, for the counties that do have them, that we might have a thousand exonerations in a year if every county had a conviction right. integrity unit. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm looking right now at... Um Goodness, longest incarcerations. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen some that. Uh, I'm, I, so it's it's. Um, goodness, it's it's. You know, I believe it's the source that you had. Uh, you might be looking at, but some of these are like uh, eight. Okay, thirty-seven years. Oh yeah, there's, there's definitely the what the other thing that years. they post on their website is an actual database that will tell you everybody who has been exonerated, what the crime was, where they were from, demographics like race and gender, um it, just a whole bunch of information, you know, what they were sentenced, if they were sentenced to life, where the death penalty, what the crime was. So you're able to see um the breakdown of all of those. And there have been, I mean, if you're, if you're looking at the current report, there have been over um, 2,700 exonerations recorded by them since 1989. And that's a, a loss of a huge amount of years. Um, I know it's over, I, I want to say maybe 24,000 years or it, something like that. They have the statistics right on their website, so it's a lot of years. And you know, some—it's it, not normal when someone is exonerated quickly. It, it's usually decades before someone's exonerated—ten years, twenty years, thirty years, some forty years. And isn't that urgent? Wouldn't that be urgent? I mean, I—you I, know—I understand what's most urgent is if somebody's on death row, of course. Okay. Um, but yet it's not treated with urgency that it deserves. I just wonder, some of these decision makers, lawmakers, uh, those that are not upholding, what if it was a member of the family that they like? <laughs> no. Um, well, we talked about... Um, legislation that was pending in Oklahoma of for a conviction review unit. Theirs was kind of unique, though, because it was only proposed to deal with death penalty cases, but which mm-hmm. is important. If that's where you need to start, then, I mean, that's where you, that's where you should start. But right, I don't know right. that that bill is going to make it out of the session. It doesn't look like it's had any activity. I've checked on these bills regularly. So it doesn't, again, though, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't support that legislation because bills can come up in the next session, even if they don't make right. it through this one. But um, I, I just, 
it, it's at the state's discretion right now whether or not they create a conviction integrity unit. There's nothing that um, requires them to do that. So well, we do have a representative in Oklahoma, uh, Kevin McDougall, and, McDougal, and he yes. has been, you know, standing up uh, for this, you know, mm-hmm. uh, conviction integrity unit bill. Um, any inmate who has received a sentence of death in Oklahoma it would also require uh, that no pending litigation remains related to the inmate's conviction. I mean, that's February. That's just in February 2021 here. So uh, yeah. we do have uh, we do have this man who is a believer in uh, and and has paid attention to these wrongful convictions he's he's yes. wide awake he's listening he's listening yes. to uh those that put him in office i mm-hmm. imagine it is uh not popular for him to be doing this uh when uh with those that have no interest in this because they have their own personal agenda but here is a brave man here is a man that is you know, standing up for uh, the rights of the people. Let's have transparency. Um, and uh, still, it, it's just not happening. Uh, so this is where the people need to come forward. Uh, they need to attend the public hearings. They need to have their say in the public hearing. Again, mm-hmm. when there is a public hearing, everybody can, will be afforded a certain amount of time to say mm-hmm. something. Um, you know, we've talked Absolutely. about this before, and um, I think it's great that there are all kinds of groups out there uh, that are, you know, working on this. But you need the members of the groups. You need it, whether you're in a group uh, or not. You need to hear not one person, not just one person that is speaking for the group, because that's still one person. You need other people to come forward and do what they can do to show that they, too, want that. Because other word, other, otherwise, it's one person speaking for a group. And if there's, yeah. if there's nobody else out there saying, yes, he's speaking for me. Yes, he's speaking for me. She is speaking for me. She's speaking for me. I mean, this is all well and fine. But we need each individual that is fighting for integrity here. Mm-hmm. To do something to show up to to create tracers, paper trails, emailing, emailing. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we need more than one person. We definitely do. There's, you know, adv- I firmly believe that this advocacy starts there. If you change the way the laws look then you change everything. So if you believe, you know, if, you know, there's a bill and you believe in, in what's in that bill and you, and you think that it should become law, then you have, like you said, you have the right to speak on that when they hold a public hearing on the bill. Anybody can do it. You sign up, you speak. Here you're given three minutes. A lot of times they'll let you go over that if, you know, I mean, there's some hearings here that will go 24 hours. It depends on what the... There's some really hotly contested subjects that will just go on and on. But mm-hmm. um, 
normally you get at least three minutes. You can submit written testimony. In fact, they like when you submit written testimony because they can go back and look at it. Here Correct. on on our website, you can go you can go back on the um, Connecticut General Assembly website and you can see all the public testimony. So now, this bill that I support, I can go see who supports it and why, and I can also see who doesn't support it and why. And you know that's great information to know, and anybody can play a part in that. You have the right to be heard. You have the right to contact your district representatives and your district senators and tell them, hey, I support this legislation and this is why. What's your position on it? You vote them in. They, you know, they need to listen to you. But, but they work for numbers. you. They work for uh, absolutely. absolutely. So I've been to many public hearings here. Groups will get together, you know, 10, 15 people. They'll have shirts made. It, it's effective. I, I will tell you mm-hmm. it's effective. They see who you, you know, everybody in the blue shirts and we support, you know, the prison reform bill or, you know, whatever it is that's on. And the legislators see that and they see you and they hear you. So I I just think that people underestimate the power of that because that's where it all starts. And I didn't know that until I ended up in the office where I am now because and and now I see it. And it's just not something that, you know, people might think of every day, but it's important, especially if you, you know, if you take an interest in, it doesn't even have to be just criminal justice. There's a, a whole, there's all kinds of issues, educational issues, health issues that come up in the legislature every day. Uh-huh. And so if, if it's something that matters to you, you have the right to be heard on it. Absolutely. Absolutely. They can, yeah, uh- they can't ignore when there's support for, you know, for, for these bills. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so uh, you know, hopefully that can motivate um, more people to wherever your state is, uh, you know, wherever you live, mm-hmm. um, you know, whatever the situation is, uh, just know that um, if somebody is is potentially innocent, uh, how can you send them or her? you know, to get killed. I mean, that's actually been, that's actually murdered if they're innocent. Well, and, um, and it has been, um, the information has been um, suppressed. You know, this is what McDougal wrote. He said, if exactly, we cannot guarantee mm-hmm. accuracy, the executions mm-hmm. should wait. You know, doesn't that make sense? Gee, we're uh, not going to kill somebody when there could be some inaccuracy. Well, that's a novel idea. And it's a shame that that is, is like, thank you, McDougal. Why doesn't everybody navigate in good conscience that way? Unfortunately. Even if you, you know, if you, even if, if you believe in the death penalty, okay, please at least believe in if we cannot guarantee accuracy, the executions should wait. Now we have Richard Glossop, who has mm-hmm. been stayed a, a, a number of times, like literally within minutes. Minutes, I know. Um, and, you know, and I, I, I can't even Google imagine that scenario. Anybody's <laughs> best friend that is mm-hmm. uh, lobbying, is advocating for 
for an integrity unit, for conviction yes. integrity. I think and that... Uh, I may be biased on the subject, but I don't. I, I just don't see how somebody can't support that. I know. Like you said, you can support the you you can support the death penalty. I never will, but there are people who support the death penalty. But that doesn't mean that you should risk executing innocent people because you support the death penalty. And even like you said, Representative McDougal sees that threat that innocent people are on death row. Innocent people have been executed. And, and I mean, like you, nobody can say that would definitely innocent people have been executed, but we know that innocent people have been executed. You can't ignore that fact. And so you have to prevent that. And I'm, I'm hoping that someday the death penalty goes away altogether. But yeah. in the meantime, the states that do practice it, I feel that they certainly have an obligation, and that's not even a strong enough word, to make sure that they're not executing innocent people. But when you have people like D.A. Prater and the Attorney General Hunter who will just refuse to even acknowledge that it happens, it's, it's, a, hard, it's a hard shell to crack. I it mean, sure you is. can – facts Look will what tell it you – for Julius Jones to just yeah. get to that first level. Yes. And to make it through stage one and to stay in, into stage two is a feat in of itself in Oklahoma. I sat through um, that meeting where they where they were hearing the stage one matters, and there was there's one member on that board who all I heard was no, 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 <laughs> no, no, and we know who that is, but right. it, it's it, it was it, it's just that you know that I had even looked at the stats because sometimes I'm detrimental to myself because I have to look at stats all the time. And the stats of people passing through stage one that have, like you, like we raised the issue before, violent crimes on their record, they have almost no chance of even getting through stage one. And that defeats the whole purpose of a pardon and parole board, but it's because of that lay down the law. You know, it was what Bob Macy and it continues with Prater and, and, and uh-huh. it's just that same mentality. And mm-hmm. we have the numbers. Bob, we know. Gilchrist, um, yeah. how many lives allegedly they are responsible for sending to uh, to death. Um, they're no longer here, and that's their legacy. Mm-hmm. That's their legacy. Now we've got McCall. We've got McCall to worry about, um, and that is, yeah, him, you know, a legacy of his own that he is is building. Um, well, it's just him, even sitting a, on that board is is so. I mean, <laughs> questionable is a word. And I was mentioning before I was talking to somebody in my office about that very subject today, and I say it too, and and we agreed that it, that that wouldn't fly. I mean, he's he threatened people on the board, <laughs> first of all. Well, right, so I've that got that right in front of me. Yeah. He threatened yeah. a former executive director. Stephen Bickley, mm-hmm. by saying he would make allegations of unspecified criminal activity against him, unless Bickley made efforts to keep death row inmates from seeking commutation hearings. Now, um, I'm, there's a publication called uh, The Frontier. They do a phenomenal job covering this. Uh, so I'm quoting that. I just quoted that from The Frontier. Um, Bickley, as a result of that, took a leave of absence because of the threat, and later on he resigned. 
he resigned from the Pardon Parole Board. Yes. Um, and yet McCall, when he made the threats, is there. So what is it that we really don't know about that, right? And so mm-hmm. uh, now McDougal is saying, you know, it's unclear how much it would cost. The additional funding, the additional funding would be required uh, to help pay for to help pay for this. Um, you know, having a private inv- uh, an investigator to okay. So what he wants to do is um, require that the pardon parole board hire and pay for an attorney as well as mm-hmm. an investigation who would be trained by Oklahoma's Council on Law Enforcement Education and Training. Neither the attorney nor the investigator could be, could be a current employer of the attorney general's office or any state district attorney, the bill states. You know, that's fair. That's fair. I mean, sure, do I see uh, uh, some possible leakage of, um, you, you know, where it could be uh, penetrated? Uh, by the agenda of others, yes, and maybe it should be, you know, an outside, um, outside of Oklahoma, you know, maybe Texas. Uh, I, I don't know. Somebody who is uh, licensed in Oklahoma but primary, primarily um, practices in Texas or another abutting state, just, you know, because it's so hard to fathom for most people just how corrupt it is, where it is, when it is in Oklahoma, uh, that, you know, you, be, you do reach this point of where you have to question everything, everything. I like the idea. I like the idea. I like the bill that McDougal uh, has brought forward. Uh, yes. The record shows that 47 inmates on death row, 46 men and one, one woman, and it's been six years since the last execution, where it was um, uh, it was Charles Warner. He, he uh, was convicted uh, of killing a child, and he was executed with the wrong drug. Yeah, yes, yeah. That so, was, and that was the last one. And the, and I mean, they halted executions because they couldn't obtain the the correct drugs to right. perform the lethal injections. So. Um, yeah, that's been since 2015. But, I mean, if you look into that, too, that issue, too, a lot of those um, drugs I found in um, the death penalty class that I had taken last semester, we talked about this, um, a lot of those drugs are manufactured in, in Europe, and they don't want to send them here for what we're using them for, to kill people, because um, Europe is very much against the death penalty. Okay. And so that was well, we that was that a problem. Oklahoma mm-hmm. wants to, you know, uh, I think the attorney general he wants to resume uh, the death penalty as soon as possible. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and and they oh, they actually Oklahoma updated its death penalty protocol um, last year. I think it was the beginning of last year um, that uh, the death penalty has been on a court ordered hiatus. Uh, and mm-hmm. I think that was, yep, I'm reading it now. It's uh, October 2015 when the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals imposed an indefinite stay on all executions. So, uh, yeah, because they needed to have a certain um, 
mixture of, of the right drugs. And I believe that that was, that's statutorial. So right. um, if you, if you can't obtain those drugs, then you can't, you can't perform these executions. Thankfully that that's what stopped it for now, but right. we want to hope that they don't resume them, especially with the kind of legislation that's pending for them to just resume executions would I, I, I would say but it wouldn't make yeah. any sense, but we see that there's a problem. We have legislators that see it as a, as a problem, and those are problems that need to be resolved. Well, I'm looking at that bill. Uh, goodness. The bill, uh, first session of the state legislator, 2021, guess what? They're actually talking about the Conviction Integrity Unit. Mm-hmm. Uh, it says, the Pardon Parole Board is hereby authorized to establish a Conviction Integrity Unit for the purpose of, let me go up here. I don't know if I'd like the fact that the uh, Pardon Parole Board would be the one establishing it, though, to tell you the truth. Uh Reviewing convictions well, on those inmates who have received death pen, uh, death sentences. So I, I just don't know. I mean, if the, if it's the pardon and parole board that's establishing a conviction integrity unit, and you have somebody like Alan McCall, who is such a boy, uh, mm-hmm. and still thereafter threatening, uh, can the uh, can he be outnumbered, or is he just going to threaten others? Um, into submission and resignation. Um, well, I mean, really thankfully you have members on that. You have members on that board who don't quite see things the same way that Alan McCall sees right. them. Thankfully, Adam so Luck. you, Adam Luck, Kelly Doyle, the newest members, um, uh, Scott Williams. You know, we haven't seen much from him yet because he is a new member, but his background is pretty promising. His, the, his background is the background of, I, I, I believe, someone who should be on the board. So hopefully, um, I, I believe he's a good addition. But so if you have, to me, especially in Oklahoma, it would be a better circumstance to have the Pardon and Parole Board establish a Conviction Integrity Unit than the DA's office. <laughs> yeah, okay, I agree with you. <laughs> because yeah, most, I, oh, and, I definitely it, agree with you. Yeah. yeah, okay, so we're heading that, in the right that, direction. That criteria, that that specific legislation about who it should be and who it can't be, um, anybody that's employed in the DA's office or in the AG's office, that's essential because you need a, you need a collaboration of people. And it's most it's successful if you even have an – like an innocence project attorney, for instance, on the board, on, mm-hmm. on the, in the unit. And, you know, you well, may have somebody, the... no, you know, defense counsel or innocence project attorneys, people who know the other side of it, because it's not going to be, if, if you just have people from the DA's office running that conviction integrity unit, it's not always going to be successful. I mean, you do have certain counties like the ones I mentioned before that are successful and they are truly exonerating people, but these are progressive DAs. You don't have progressive DAs in Oklahoma. I I mean, I I shouldn't say that, but I mean, the majority (laughs) from what I have seen don't fall into that category. 
Well, this bill also says once an investigation has been completed by the Conviction Integrity Unit, the unit shall present its findings and recommendations to the Pardon and Parole Board. So mm-hmm. it's kind of interesting, you know, so the, uh, the Conviction Integrity Unit presents its recommendations, but I don't, yeah. So, I mean, once again, if you have a solid Pardon and Parole Board put together, then that is just fine. Um, copies of the report shall also be delivered to the Attorney General, the Office of the District Attorney that prosecuted the criminal case, the Attorney General who represented the inmate in the criminal case, and the inmate. Um, you, you know, this uh, says this act shall become effective November 1st, 2021. If it, yes, if it were passed. That would be the okay. date that it would be effective. Right. It would be great to have him on with us sometime. That would be phenomenal, um, McDougall. So, yeah. That, uh, and I, like I mean, doing. for him to, to to propose this legislation is, you know, phenomenal, especially in a state like Oklahoma that's resistant to it. Yeah, it's the right thing to do. It, it is. is the right thing. And like I said, whether or not you agree with the death penalty or you don't, it's still the right thing to do. You mm-hmm. Because if you, you agree have. with the death penalty, I'm, uh, we're hoping that you agree with the death penalty for those that are actually guilty of the crime that they have been sentenced to the death penalty for. Um, you know, everything that I have learned that I know firsthand um, I, I just can't believe in the death penalty anymore. Um, yeah. And also, you know, after uh, after um, uh, many hours with um, a, a couple of people that turned around, you know, the rehabilitation and whatnot, and um, just uh, it, it's just phenomenal. You know, if there's no uh, there's no purpose served by the death penalty. I mean, it's not. We could. This has been said a million times. It's not a deterrent. Um, the some the the South where they practice the death penalty the most has the highest murder rates in the country. So obviously, it's not deterring people from committing murder if they're doing it at a higher rate in the and then what that, happens behind bars, right? Well, they've got mm-hmm. nothing to lose. They're they're on death row anyways. Yeah, right? and it, 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 yeah, and it, 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 there's it, in the cost of it, and the fact that it is not a deterrent, which is what it was supposed to be, which is the purpose of it. It comes down right. to the to the fact that it, it's it's purely vengeance. Purely vengeance. And I don't think yeah. there's any room for that in in our criminal justice system because it, it, it's arbitrary. It's racial, we know that, and mm-hmm. it, it just there's there's no reason for it to exist, but it, it does in some states. And the least we can do is make sure that we're not killing innocent people in those states that are still practicing it. You know, you hope, I hope that eventually the the you know the the swaying of the national consensus is is going to go in such a way that it's not going to be acceptable to murder people anymore and the support for the death penalty. So let's talk about, um, uh, we, we have Leslie Wiggins 
on uh, several times, and she is, you know, because we've got about uh, less than 10 minutes left. Um, mm-hmm. We have, I have Leslie Wiggins on, on behalf of her husband a number of times, and uh, her, her husband is Daryl Wiggins. And mm-hmm. um, he, he was uh, sentenced for life. And uh, with parole, but never been given parole, yet he seems to have met all of the prongs, everything that would warrant him to uh, be considered for parole. And they haven't even gotten to the point where the jacket, you know, with the ja- the jacket is, is, is opened. Uh, he's got mm-hmm. a, a pardon parole hearing coming up in May. Um, okay. He was... Uh, I know we were talking about this a little, just a little bit before uh, the show, and it, it appears that he might be part of that felony murder rule. Uh, can you yeah. speak on that a little bit? But the fact that the man uh, has been behind well, bars murder. in early twenties yeah. uh, for like thirty something years. And has done everything right. Um, mentors young, uh, mentors uh, the guys that are in there, keeping him out of trouble. Maybe he's doing too good of a job um, for the system uh, to let him go. Uh, you know, what's it going to take for this man to be uh, given that second chance um, when he's been a model prisoner and? Uh, What's it going to take? But let's talk about that felony murder rule and what that means. Well, I know the felony murder rule, you don't have to actually have committed the murder to be convicted of murder. So you can actually not have killed somebody and you can get life in prison. So um, that's that's, that's that in a nutshell. So, you know, you could have somebody who was... um, the lookout in a robbery that went wrong and somebody got killed and that person who was the lookout can be convicted of first degree murder. And so this is, yep. So uh, Daryl never even touched um, the person that died. Um, Yeah. And uh, there are other people that actually did and restrained that person, touched that Mm -hmm. person that that had been long out uh, and yet, uh, Daryl is, is uh, life with parole? <laughs> really? No. Well, no. You know, I don't to. know his case in particular, but I will look into it. But we know that there are other instances where the person who didn't actually commit the murder gets the life sentence, and the ones who did because they're the ones who talk to the police first or, you know, give them whatever story they want to hear, they will get off with 15 years, 20 years, and we see it happening case after case after case. Yep, just and, to charge um, somebody. Yeah. And, the, you know, as many Make people as you can happy. get. To, I don't yep, think the public is really happy when they find out the truth behind these convictions. That is the thing. This is I would where hope we not. Transparency. We do need transparency. And, I mean, there's no justice when, when somebody is convicted, you know, wrongfully or excessively. There, there's no justice, especially in a wrongful conviction. There's no justice for the victim when you convict the wrong person for the crime. Right. And, and I think people need to really look at that because 
I know that, you know, you can't forget about the victims in these cases, but when you wrongfully convict someone and if, you know, forbid you, you execute somebody who is innocent, that is not justice. That is purely vengeance and it is just, it, it, it needs to be stopped. And I mean, and like the way you do that is with this type of legislation that's pending. I, I just, I wish it would pass through, but like I said, you, you got to keep at it. But I don't think that um, people like look seriously enough at wrongful convictions. That it, it, they're starting to be, it's starting to be a little bit more well known. But it, it's still, you know, we still need to look at the fact that this happens. There's there's numbers that prove it, and so we need mm-hmm. to change the way that we do things to to prevent this from happening for justice for everybody. That includes the victim too. And I and I will never, you know, forget the victims in the cases, but the people who are wrongfully convict, convicted are just as much victims as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. But the second they're put behind bars, um, mm-hmm. you know, their voice doesn't seem to matter. Some don't actually get the access to the law books and the law library like they're supposed to be able to have access to, uh, as well as phones. Um, you know, we understand with all the COVID and whatnot, but that does not change the fact that, um, that somebody is uh, trying to defend their innocence or, uh, you know, look to be held to the proper sentence um, as opposed to a trumped up sentence. Um, uh, you know, if you complain, uh, in many instances, we've had many people on, on, on the show, including mm-hmm. uh, some corrections office, ex-corrections officers testifying to the fact that um, there's abuse that goes on. You know, if you want yeah. to complain, you're going to get abused, if not yeah. more. Uh, that, you know, where where do the complaints go? <laughs> uh, quite often not where they're meant to go. That's a violation. That is a violation. Yeah. Uh, Oklahoma Department of Corrections doesn't seem too interested in in that information, and uh, it, it's time to start putting uh, it's time to start putting the accountability where it actually belongs. Contraband. Well, the contraband mm-hmm. majority wise is coming through by corrections officers. No, no, absolutely, it doesn't just walk in by itself. <laughs> Uh, but you know, how does the contraband get in there when uh, when you you know if you have visiting visiting uh, situations and uh, and they're patted up and down and in between and all around and they feel as though they've been violated? Well, heck, no, they're not bringing in contraband. Then how the heck is it getting in there? Yes, ag- agreed. We know how it's getting in there, but <laughs> like you said the accountability is not being uh, geared towards where it should be geared towards. It's being geared towards the prisoners for having the contraband, but not towards the people who actually brought it in there. Then I imagine that, Melissa, that you have heard of uh, Oklahoma City, um, uh, just the detention center and uh, all the crazy stuff that's been going on there. I think it's the ninth Mm -hmm. death in the past uh, year. And uh, that, that uh, there's question marks. Um, pretty much every one of them, including, you know, there was a man that took uh, a corrections officer hostage. I do not condone mm-hmm. that by any 
and no way, no how, okay? However, um, he wasn't armed. Yeah, absolutely. He wasn't armed. 100% that could have been resolved in a whole different way, but unfortunately it wasn't. And I mean, we talk about police brutality in in, in instances of excessive force, you know, used by police, but it happens inside these facilities too. We know this from correct by corrections officers. I know they have a tough job to do. I know they do, but oh, well, they're they're underpaid, undertrained, and you know, essentially they're threatened. Too, if they if they don't become a part of good old boys club, you know, boys and girls mm-hmm. club, the agenda, and that's why you know those that we've had on the show, you know, uh, are, are uh, almost everybody has been anonymous because they still get threatened to hold them in line. Um, but we're about we're about out of time, uh, Melissa. Uh, we're going to have mm-hmm. a great show beginning of the series on Sunday. About yes, we are. Oh. Yes, so we will in. talk about the Lawton Four. <laughs> Yeah, please tune. I thank you for showing. Thank you for being here tonight, uh, for talking about all this. I'm sorry I did not give an opening for people to call in. Uh, it flew by. Uh, Melissa Hurry, thank you so much, and we'll have you back on on Sunday. And the Lawton Four. So spread the word, people. Spread the word. I'm Tanya Hathaway, and I'm and I'm your host uh, with Tanya Talks, where your voice is heard and your story is told on Marty Oakley's TS Radio Network. And Stephen Brooks, 89.9 KLRB FM Lighthouse Christian Radio. Uh, Once again, thank you for tuning in. Keep following us. Keep listening to us. God bless and good night.